Heather Teo Skipworth is the creator, visionary and CEO of Iron Māori. She started the multi-sport event in 2009 with only 300 people. Today, it boasts events right across Aotearoa, with numbers reaching 6,000 participants per venue. Iron Māori has also become the biggest club provider into Ironman New Zealand. The kaupapa was set up to tackle the growing issue of ill health amongst Māori and is proudly open to all people of all shapes and sizes. Heather's strive for equity isn't just in the health space. That's why Hinetoa ran for parliament in the last general election and has high hopes to represent her people when the next one rolls around. In this episode, Heather talks to us about her inspiration behind Iron Māori. She shares her personal challenges and the experiences she has had with Fano who have suffered with addiction. Heather also talks to us about the realities of running an election campaign and what she wants to change for Māori should she get a seat in Parliament at the next election. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kia hine. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to another episode of Nuku and today we are in the Nuku Whare again which is so lovely because I don't often get to do interviews in the Nuku Whare so it's, it's nice to have uh, this space to have these kōrero. Uh, we have the amazing Heather Teo Skipworth with us today, kia ora. Kia ora whanau. Thank you for coming uh, up to Tāmaki for this kōrero. Um we have so many things to call it all with you about today, and there are so many diverse parts of your life, particularly in the last few years that I've seen, um, go on in your world. But as we do, we always start with, who are you and where are you from? So, ko wai koe no hea koe. no Ngāti Kakungunu, kaitahu, te arawa mai Ngāti Rangitihi, Ngāti Runui me Tufare Toa. Engare i tupuaki ahau kei pakipaki. Um, ai, kia ora. Kia ora. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was your childhood like growing up here in Aotearoa? Um, challenging. My dad, um, he struggled with alcoholism. So there was, there's, I have seven siblings and my mum was basically the breadwinner. My dad, um, yeah, he struggled through life. He was uh, brought up in a in a boys' home, Borstal, and um, was unfortunately abused, which led him to the path of becoming an alcoholic, and that spiralled into our Fano upbringing. Mm. Um, but you know, I don't see myself as um, is unfortunate. I actually see myself as fortunate because my dad, um, he reformed himself and became a drug and alcohol counsellor. And in that, he showed me two worlds, the struggle world and the world where you don't have to struggle as much. Wow. How did his story and those two worlds influence you in particular and your younger years? Um, 
you know, the police would turn up because my dad would, you know, it was a bit like a once warrior's story. So you'd wake up in the middle of the night, my dad's beating my mum or screaming and yelling. The police would turn up. He'd go away on holiday for a couple of days and then he'd come back. And I and it didn't matter what my dad did. You just still missed him, you know, and so the police would turn up and you'd be praying. They didn't take your dad away, although at times you were praying they did because of the destruction that was happening in our family. But um, it was really the love my mum had for my dad to stick by him right to the end, to the part where he felt safe to be him. Yeah. Mm. And, and many, what I see is many families, I wouldn't say give up because <clears throat> no two journeys are the same. But from what I saw with my mum, she never gave up on my dad. Um, kicked him out a number of times, but always um, took him back and tried to support him through his journey. That's really strong. And that's that's really difficult because mm. that's not an easy thing to... A, want to stay with someone, but B, want to stay with them to see them through mm. and come out the other end and I guess be able to be a part of the goodness that comes out the other end. Mm. Is that, I mean, did did that part of your mama and seeing your mama like that influence how you are as an Indigenous wahine, the strength that she carried being able to do that for and with your papa? Yeah, absolutely. My mum was a prayer warrior, so she would always cut a care when she was going through the trials and tribulations with my dad's, um, I call it a, you know, it's a health issue. Mm. That he, he wasn't an alcoholic. And I think the way the system has colonised us, they've labelled us. So my dad is deemed alcoholic. He's not an alcoholic. He is a person that struggled with alcoholism. Um, so my... My mum taught me that if you believe in karakia and tiatua, that um, support is there and it does come. Mm. Um, and that's what kept her going, you know. There, I'm sure there were times where my mum thought, you know, why and I just want to give up. And I do remember every time we went to bed, um, I'd always sleep with my mum because I felt safe. And then when my dad was there, both of them, which is why I would experience waking up in the middle of the night, and I always remember her praying to God. Yeah. Mm. In your high school years, and it's normally a time in our lives where we're sort of thinking about what we're going to do as adults and where we're going to go and what kind of lives we're going to live and how we can sneak things that our parents don't know about <laughs> into our lives. What was your high school years, those teenage, early 20 years like for you and at that age, what did you see yourself doing and being in the future? It's quite, um, I don't know if it's strange, but I actually never had aspirations to be anything. Like I didn't, my cousins were like, I want to be a flight attendant. Mm. or. And I, um, I knew I wanted a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so I got one of those. Um but I didn't, I, I suppose, because we had quite a um, traumatic upbringing, just surviving was enough. And mm. like to try and think about what I want to be or who I want to be, I think I just let life take its um, its journey on me instead of me picking my journey. Yeah. Until I, um, 
And, to, and it was actually my dad. By then, he had reformed himself. So when I was about 12, he had reformed himself and he actually became a drug and alcohol counsellor. And he sort of nurtured me. So I used to play a lot of sport um, to help me to subside what was going on in my life. So sport was my go-to. And I just played a lot of sport. Once I finished school, I played rugby, touch, rugby league, netball. Um, and that was my life. Sport was my life. Mm. Yeah. What what was it about the sport? Because I know there's there's the team element of it, but there's also the physicality side of it, and the, then there's the competitiveness. Yeah. <laughs> was there one of those that really pushed you into staying with sport? It was um, definitely the team because I um, my brothers and sisters were a lot older and mm. they had kind of grown up and left home, and it was just me. Um, and I think it was the the Fano aspect of it, but also they letting the aggression out, you know, like so playing rugby league meant I could smash people or I'd get smashed. Um, yeah, so it was it was expending all that energy of because um, back then nobody offered you counselling, nobody, um, you know, there was none of that. You just had to deal with life and, yeah. And sport's a healthy way to do that. Yeah. Especially when you do get to smash someone on the other side of the field and it actually is part of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it, I loved sport. I really loved it and I and I liked to excel in it. Um, and it, it would make me feel good. Whether we won or not, it was about, for me, finding solutions um, during the game to help um, outdo my opponent. So, okay, that person tackles like that. So if she tackles on the right side, I'll sidestep her on the right side and run to the left. You know, it was like uh, everything was a process in my head. It wasn't about just turning up and playing a game. I'd always look for a solution to outdo whatever I was doing. Yeah. You, at the moment, and you have been in this space for a while, you've been involved in in a hauora physical sport type space. You are the creative visionary and CEO of Iron Māori, and I really want to talk to you about that shortly. Um, but you're also a board member for the District Health Board and, well, Deputy Chair of Kahungunu Asset Holdings, which isn't sport, but, you know, hauora still, <laughs> when we think of the, the whare tapa whā model and how that um, supports our whānau. What was it about this hauora space that really got you into this type of mahi? Um, it was actually my dad. So my dad said, I'm going to send you away on a um, nutrition course mm-hmm. and then I could um, help his um, whānau clients to, you know, look at better choices of eating so they started to feel better. So he sent my sister and I on one um, and we loved it. And at the time I was an aerobics instructor as well at a gym, so I was playing sport. Right, did you wear like the... the- I did once. <laughs> the G-string back the front. That's the one. Yeah. Um, And if I look back then to what I look like now, I should have wore it a number of times. But but I did wear it once and thought, oh, this is not me. And everybody was still wearing them. But I loved, so I loved taking a class where you'd see people come in the room and you'd see the worries of the world on their shoulders. And by the time you had finished a class, it was like the weight had lifted, Mm. probably only momentary. Um, until they left the gym and got home and then life fell back on their shoulders. So, yeah, that's what I loved is um, changing the way people felt. Tell me about Iron Māori. 
because I remember when Iron Māori first came into the world and I had just started hearing about this event that was like an Iron Man, but anybody, any shape, any person could participate, that the, the time allocations or time allowances weren't as strict as an Iron Man, that there were so many diverse bodies participating in Iron Māori and that it was a kaupapa Māori. And I was thrilled when I first found out about it. And in those early years, every single time an Iron Māori uh, event was happening, it would be sold out in a flash, like just like that. Where did this idea come from? How did you, how did you even get it off the ground? I was actually a lifestyle coach for one of our holder providers in Kahunganu. And my role was to, um, we would take Fano in on our program and they had to be um, really overweight or obese. Mm. And so most of our Fano were 130 kgs up. I think our, our most fuller figured was 180 kgs. And um, obviously it was a government contract given to this whole provider, but the outcome measures for the government that satisfied them was um, to measure somebody and stick a tape measure around them and, and measure their, their girth. I didn't even know what a bling and girth was. <laughs> but, uh, and then their breast um, circumference and then their inner thigh, uh, their ankles, their neck, and then also you had to weigh them. And I thought, this is pretty effed up, you know, mm. like this is just not, this, this, you know, and so the outcome was for them, the KPIs were they had to lose weight and in the um, ministry's eyes, that deemed a person to be healthy. And yet I know from my experience growing up, I was thin as they come and I didn't feel very healthy mentally because of what was happening in my upbringing. And I thought, oh, you know, this is just wrong. So, um, but we had to adhere to the contract. And then um, one day I thought, oh, I want to do something different. I want to put them in a triathlon. So I um, trained our whanau, put them in a triathlon. And when we turned up to the mainstream Tawiwi triathlon, we looked like something that landed out of the sky from Mars because (laughs) everybody was slender and um, wetsuits never popped any else, you know, apart from the shoulder or, and, um, but what we did was we ensured that the kaupapa uh, of why we were there was maintained so I could see our whanau were nervous, we had a karakia, we stuck our arms around and what we did was we blocked out the outside interference and that's, that's how it felt was that the way people looked interfered with the way that we felt or mm-hmm. our whanau felt so we blocked it out by bringing in cut a care and surrounding each other. So we started the swim. There were 30 whānau, did the swim. And we they had been telling me they'd been going swimming. And then the race started and I was like, they were starfishing on their backs and barely <laughs> moving and pretending they were drowning. And I was like, just stand up. The water's like shallow. <laughs> um, but long story short was we had set a challenge. Our whānau stepped up and we all completed it. And the sad thing was it was a mainstream um, kaupapa and we hadn't even finished the run and the organisers were packing down everything, um, pulling the finish line down. And so when our final person come through, who was 180 kgs when we started the programme, he was about 160 by then. So it was like 
life. He had lost mm. a whole lot of life. And um, so our boys knew straight away I was not going to feel good. So again, we stopped the outside interference and lined up and did a haka for him. He didn't even notice the finish line had gone and the organisers had left. And I thought, oh, there's something in this, you know, like we set a goal and they um, have this sense of achievement. So I thought, oh, I better practice what I preach. I better do a triathlon. So I did a small triathlon like they did. It nearly half killed me because I'm used to doing different, not endurance stuff. Mm. So then my husband and I set a goal to do New Zealand Ironman and that was a 3.8k swim, 180k bike and a 42k run. We didn't really know what we were doing. Got a coach. <laughs> so we turned up to Ironman. It was my realisation of how my our whānau felt when we turned up to the mainstream, although we were small, we looked totally different to the people that were at this big Ironman international event. And I felt like they were anorexic and I was obese, although, you know, and then I allowed the outside interference to interfere with how I felt. Mm. Um, But we went through the day, we completed it, and you had 17 hours and I did it just under 15 but I remember when I crossed that finish line, it was like the biggest sense of achievement other than marrying my husband and giving birth. It was the next best, biggest sense of achievement. And I thought, if I can instill that in our whānau, man, the world's the oyster because it's not about a swim, a bike or a run. It was about instilling a sense of achievement that they can go on and uh, play out in every part of their lives. Mm. So Iron Māori was born, it was like well, we won't start an Ironman because that would technically kill them straight away. <laughs> We'd start a half Ironman and work from there. So that's how, yeah, Ironman was born. It's amazing. How many years has it been running now? We're in our 13th year. This wow. Yeah. And is it in a number of locations now as well? Yeah, we, we um, well, COVID kind of. Yeah, COVID ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> COVID, um yeah, so we were in a number of locations. We still are in about three others other than Kahungunu. Um, but, yeah, we've been to um, locations and we're no longer there as well. Um, what we don't do is just turn up, roll out in a, a kaupapa <laughs> and then pack up and leave. We wait for a tunnel. Mm. And um, where we've been, we'd have had tunnel. And, um, yeah, it's been... It, uh, my whole reason for starting it was because of my whānau on that um, program and it outgrew me. It outgrew my what I was thinking. It, it grew faster than we could keep up. Do you have an idea how many people have gone through Iron Māori in those 13 years? We, um, we think probably about 60,000. Just off the top of our head, we just sort of looked at, oh, well, that one sold out and that one mm. was this amount. Um, so we think about 60,000 participants, but if you look at the impact it may have had on their family members, you could probably quadruple or even, yeah. Yeah. What are some of the life-changing experiences you've witnessed through Iron Māori? Because as, as someone who's watched it from the outside, I know a couple of my whānau members who have participated in one of the events, um, but I have also seen different ropu, whānau, marae, um, training for the event. And I've seen different people 
become half their body size, which is not, you know, not always the ultimate goal, but they've become half their body size or they've transformed their lives. Where before they did Iron Māori, their lives were very sedentary, unhealthy, and and whether they're the same size or not after Iron Māori, it's actually changed their Mm. outlook on life, how they participate in the world, the kind of um, risks and challenges that they take now. What are some of the things that you've witnessed being on the inside and getting to know some of the participants over the years? Yeah, lots of um, lots of life-changing experiences have been shared with me and it's really humbling and emotional. People come up and mm. hug me and they say, you've changed my life. If it wasn't for you, I'd be dead. And you think, gosh, you know, that's like... And you, and you just try and stay grounded because... Yeah. Um, when people compliment you, ego can sweep you off your feet before you even realise and then you think you're untouchable, you know. And um, so I'm humble about it and I um, thank them and then I just, it's okay, you're just like everybody else. Other people have changed thousands of people's lives. Um, But a lot of it's health issues, mental health issues, um, alcoholism, addictions, and, and it kind of, for me, it's like I'm doing what my mum did for my dad, mm. but for people I don't know. And it feels good because if I can stop tamariki and rangatahi having to go through what I did, um, to me, that's that's powerful. That's amazing. And you did that because I just wanted to point out that you built Iron Māori from nothing <laughs> with no qualifications, and I say that in quote marks, Um Yet it has been hugely successful over these 13 plus years because it will continue and you have had impact on all of these people's lives. Has the fact that you built it from nothing and had no qualifications ever stopped you or did that ever play on your mind? Was there a point where you thought, I can't do this or I've got imposter syndrome or, you know, was there, were there any of those moments throughout that time? I always reflect, you know, I always reflect on myself and my life. And and sometimes I did, I thought, you know, how did I get here? You know, and actually after our first event, it's really sad because sometimes our own whānau are our our biggest challenge, Mm. you know, and um, the tall poppy syndrome of, oh, you know, that was a, that was just a one-off. People won't take that up and... And so I use that to drive me, not to prove people wrong, but to prove that what I'm doing is right. Yeah. And yes, it's amazing that you have driven this, but like most kaupapa, there's someone who is at the front and then there are a whole lot of people at the back. Yeah. What sort of help have you received and how did you find yourself asking for help? Because it's not easier to ask for help. No, that, that is one of my biggest weaknesses is asking for help mm. because I, I, I suppose, as I mentioned, I see it as a weakness yeah. and I shouldn't. Um, but my biggest hero would be Te Atua. It, it was, you know, resetting, realigning and asking if this is where I'm supposed to go, you know, lead me that way. Um, and in the physical form would be my husband. Um, so during the inception of I Māori, my husband was a um, drug addict, smoking marijuana like people do cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like cyclic. I went from my dad and then my husband was a um, 
addicted to marijuana. So it was the same sort of thing. I felt like I was playing out my mum's life Mm. to nurture my husband. But in the same time, I was nurturing everybody else that wanted nurturing. And um, then we got other people involved. So we got the um, local event, uh, multi-sports event organiser to come in. Um, and help us for a certain time. There was always going to be a period where we transitioned her out and because it was kaupapa Māori. So we wanted our Māori people to um, to help run and organise it, not that it was just superficial, you know, it's a Māori mm-hmm. name with very little um, culture and values that were Māori. You talk about nurturing your husband and you talk about nurturing all of the people that have been through Iron Māori how do you nurture yourself? Because that's a very giving, typical Indigenous wahine thing to do <laughs> is to take care of everybody else around you. How do you nurture yourself? I'm still trying to figure that one mm. out. It's really, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's really hard. So probably midway through Iron Māori, as I mentioned in, in the beginning, I loved sport and I loved being active, going to the gym. And I actually um, neglected my own health. So I got fuller figured and um, and instead of focusing on, you know, what made me feel good, I actually worked harder so that I didn't have to reflect on what I was doing to my own body. Mm-hmm. And so I worked harder. I offered myself out more and um, I let myself go. And then I got to a point where I've just, I've just had enough. And so I thought what I did with Iron Māori and going to Ironman, I took myself out of my comfort zone, set a goal and I achieved it. So two years ago, I took myself out of my comfort zone and I entered a bodybuilding competition. Wow. And it was something I'd never done in my life. I I don't even think I wore a bikini at a time when my body was at its (laughs) best. Um, But yeah, so I entered that, never to win it, but just to... um, again, go, oh, I can set this goal and I'm going to achieve it. And I did, and it felt really, really good. And um, it made me think, you know, you give so much of yourself to everybody else, but you'll wear yourself down quicker if you don't take care of yourself. Mm. I can I can feel so many people nodding as you say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> My question around the bodybuilding, though, is how long did it take for the fake tan to fade? <laughs> Oh, I look like um, a two papaku. My feet, because <laughs> no. when it washes off, like it looks orangey off, and and so it was summer, and my feet and my toes just looked like they were dead, and um, yeah, it was it was horrible. But because I never put it much on my face, it was like somebody had plonked this fair head, chopped somebody's head off, and put oh, it on this body. really orange. <laughs> Donald Trumpish kind of no um, <laughs> colouring, but yeah. So it, it took probably about three weeks. Wow. Yeah. I'm just always fascinated. Like I see so many. I see see the photos of all the people with all the spray tan. I'm like, how long does that take to come off? Because that is thick and dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a stain. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, politics mm. and the recent. Um, Aotearoa election that we had because your face graced 
um, lots of billboards. And for those who may not be aware are from your rohe, you stood for parliament, mm. um, for the Māori Party. Yeah. What made you decide, or who made you decide? No. <laughs> what made you decide to have a go at politics and what was that like in that period of time? I think that journey started about seven years ago. Tudor Flavel came and asked me to stand. And um, back then, Iron Māori had gone to, it was probably in its peak, and I thought, oh, you know, if, if this is what I created, why not give it a go without thinking about it properly? And then Te Atua said to me, no, not yet, you're going to have a baby. So he blessed me with a, with a <laughs> child, and so I pulled out. And then probably about three years ago, our iwi chair just kept nagging me, can you stand? And I, no, I'm not ready. And then... Um, just in the recent last year, he nagged and I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it is time. Spoke to my husband and, um, you know, obviously we don't, we don't come from a perfect whanau, so we weighed up um, the media influence mm. and how we could protect that they left my whanau, that they left my whanau alone um, and also let our whanau know that this is what I wanted to do and is everybody okay with it? And then, yeah, so put my hand up and again, it was taking myself out of my comfort zone. But what I always do is I take myself out of my comfort zone and I stay there until it becomes comfortable and then it's normal. Mm. Mm. Were there any highlights from that period? Because I have some highlights watching from the outside. I love politics Mm. and um, it drives me nuts and I get really angry during (laughs) election time (laughs) and I swear and rant. A lot. Yeah. Um, but I love it. And I was watching like a hawk the campaign for the Māori Party and see it shift and change and become what it did, which mm. um, saw two Māori Party seats in Parliament. But what was what were some of the highlights for you over that period over that <laughs> short <laughs> lead up to the election period? Because actually it's quite intense. It is, it is. And like I still had to work and put food on the table and you've like three months in an election, uh, in a campaign mode. And I had to cover, um, I think it was about 800 kilometres was my geographical area, which was really, really tough. And I've got a little six-year-old and getting her up early so we could travel and drop her mm. off at mum's. The highlights for me were probably debating um, I've never debated in my life except with my husband, but I always <laughs> win those. Like, I always win those. Yeah. Um, so, and then actually debating publicly yeah. um, on TV. That was, for me, that was a highlight because I felt like um, I'd never done it before and I felt quite comfortable, even though I was freaking out at 90, you know, as it's happening. And then afterwards, I, actually, I think I quite like that because I've always been a solutions-based person. So I didn't just debate what I saw was wrong. I came with the solution mm. as well. So, yeah, that was definitely my heart with, with the debates. Although I'd ring Debbie Packer and say, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go on TV. <laughs> She's like, look, yeah, you're going on TV. And, you have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> I... As I said, I watched Like a Hawk from the outside and saw the campaign grow significantly and saw the Māori Party come back Mm. and come back with 
um, a vengeance is the word that comes to mind. <laughs> but come back strong. And I had my own personal issues with the Māori Party because, mm. um, you know, National and Māori Party and Ikumata yeah. and all of those things yeah, that I alone. hold on to. Um, and what I witnessed during that period was transformational in my own thinking and the the such a strong campaign that was focused on tinoranga tiratanga and being Māori and proud to be Māori. And that has continued, mm. um, you know, since the election and, and has moved on. And while you weren't successful in your particular seat at that time, mm. <laughs> um, that's not the end. And yeah. so are you going to stand again? Yeah. I, if I get the candidacy, I'm definitely going to stand. And I'm like, it's been um, six months, just over six months, and I'm hungry. Like, I want to get going, but I know I'm going to need a lot of energy for the second time around. And, um, and you know, I hear what you're saying about people having issues from what happened the last time. And um, everybody has a right to have them. But we can always change our mind, mm. you know, like you don't have to stay focused that way. And if there's a new reveal, which I think is what we bought, um, and we didn't make promises, we only stated facts, which were based on te tiriti o waitangi. So I think there's a difference in, in the way we can pay. If, if you pick me, you will get this. If you pick me, it was if you pick us, we will stand true to te tiriti o waitangi. And you did change minds because I'm very stubborn and you changed mine. <laughs> and you all did that, which was um, phenomenal. But the kaupapa behind it and the drive behind it and the movement that it has contributed to uh, around standing proud as Māori and Aotearoa today is significant. And I want to ask you about that because, yes, there's one part of you that is um, you know, a Māori Party candidate but there's also a part of you that is a wahine Māori mm. who has and continues to stand proud as you are today. With, with that in mind, what is it to be an Indigenous wahine today? And what has been your experience as you've travelled those 800 kilometres, but also as you've just been in this iron Māori space for the last 13 plus years and you've been in the world for <clears throat> the 21 years you've been in the world. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, what is it to be an Indigenous wahine today? What does that it, look like? Um, it, it's a whole lot of things, you mm. know. It's... Um, when I campaigned, whether I was Māori Party, whether I was Iron Māori, whether I was a robots instructor, I always knew that it was okay to be me, which was Māori to he Māori tuatahi. And um, so campaigning was easy because we just had to be ourselves. We were told just to be ourselves, which was Māori. And um, you're, you're right, there's a rise and people are happy, happier to go out in the world and be Māori, mm. uh, not having to change depending on who's around the table or uh, who you're talking to. And even though uh, there's a government in place, people are still okay to stand up and be Māori. And if the government isn't okay with that, then that's the problem. And that's where I'm finding is everyone's like, it doesn't matter whether they're Māori Party supporters or not, we are proud 
to be Māori. And um, it, it gives you a different view uh, to life, to, that it's okay to be you. And actually, it's never been better. It's never a better time to be you. Mm. And I know in the past, before I took on politics, probably about 10 years ago, I didn't give two hoots about parliament or government. I just thought I just have to make it through life. Um, And I suppose I was searching, who am I? Where is my place in life? And um, I only feel safe being a Māori. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard someone say the words of how I feel. And that's quite a realisation for me that when we talk about who we are and our identities and what we describe ourselves as, and when we say, who are you? Mm. I only feel safe being a Māori. So thank you for articulating that in that way. (laughs) Because I've never actually been able to verbalise why I identify the way that I do. Mm. And that's exactly it. Earlier before we started this kōrero, you and I were having a little talk about your mokokauai mm. and your journey um, with your mokokauai. And it's something I love speaking to wahine mau moko about, mostly for my own personal reasons, <laughs> because the more I talk about it, the more it kind of helps me ease my own mind into it a bit more. But how did you know that the time was right for you to receive your mokokauai? Um, when I became um, infatuated and fixated on women, when I, I I'll rephrase that, on <laughs> when I would see a woman with a mokokauai, it was like, that's me, but that's not me. Mm. That person is me, but that's me. I could identify um, myself in somebody else. And the more, it was sort of like, I couldn't get it out of my mind. It was, you know, it wasn't saying it's your time, but um, it was one of my main focuses every single day. And as much as I kept saying, oh, you know, that's, no, that's not you, it just kept coming harder and stronger. Mm. And um, I remember messaging Dai Kopua and saying, kia ora and she was like, is it time? And I was like, wow, she's like a clairvoyant. <laughs> how did she know it was time? But obviously she's seen journey, people's journeys and mm. that's how it's, yeah. So it just, um, it took over my life in a good way. I always wonder how people know they're ready, but also the moment that you're on the table just before the needle starts or before the uhi is pulled out, are you Sure, because, you know, there's no going back mm. once that moment happens. Yeah. Were you very settled in that moment knowing this is it? Or was there a point in that moment where you went, oh, is this, is this it? <laughs> I remember the morning getting up, having a shower, getting dressed and then looking in the mirror, doing my hair and thinking, oh, that same thing. Oh, mm. my gosh, you know, is this it? And then I had a karakia and in my mind it was whatever will be, will be. Yeah. Have you experienced people responding to you differently as a wahine maumoko, positively or negatively, but have you have you noticed a difference? 
Yeah, um, the odd time I have it, you, you can just feel somebody's aura and um, usually it's a pale, stale male where <laughs> I get that mm. not so great vibe. Um, and I do remember a man and a and a, a Pakeha man and woman, older couple, and him saying, why did she put that on her face? And I thought, get up and go over and have a go. And then I thought, no, just smile because you wanted this. You wanted this. But um, very little, very little negativity. And in saying that, I've had a lot of Pakeha men and women come up and say, oh, my gosh, your moco is so beautiful. <laughs> so I put my arm around them and I said, oh, thank you so much. Now, let's talk more cool, you know. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's an education process for them yeah. too, but the fact they took time out of their day and just so many um, compliments, it's quite overwhelming, but majority of compliments and only that that one gentleman I heard um, was negative about it, but I'm the one wearing it and I'm comfortable with it. Mm. Mm. We've talked a little bit about your mama and... Uh, your sister, you and I spoke earlier about your sister. Um, who are some Indigenous women that have inspired you on your journey? And it might be them or it might be some others as well. Who, yeah. who might they be? Um, my nannies. Um, so my mum, she would always have lots of our nannies and, and not like my grandma's sisters, but just the nannies in the village. So we we were brought up in a little village called Paki Paki. Mum was always at the marae if she wasn't at work. Mm. And mum was a, uh, and still is a monarchy, so she was probably about in her 40s, but you'd always have a nanny at home, come for tea or come down for a, a kohimuhimu. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so it was those nannies that... Um, help grow my mum who helped grow us. And you'd see them at the marae and, and the nannies back then were, yes, you'd get a growling and you'd accept it. Don't play in front of the whare and, um, But they were the nannies that you wanted to grow old and be like. Um, so they hadn't um, changed the way of the world, but they changed the way of our world, our small world in our village. So... Probably not famously known, but mm. definitely, um, yeah, yeah, my nanny Mary, nanny Goosey, yeah, just beautiful, beautiful woman. I love that you just said nanny Goosey because so many of our nannies have these nicknames <laughs> that, do you know nanny Goosey's actual name? No, I don't, I don't. And I know that's not her name, but yeah, her name was Nanny Goosey. And, and I just, like, I highlight that because it's one of these things that we as Wahine have in our whanau where these nannies have these nicknames. And I remember growing up with one of our nannies, Nanny Sissy, who was Nanny Sissy. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned her name was Patricia. Mm. And so then I started calling her Patricia and she used to always like get frustrated at me because I'd call her Patricia cheekily. But it was um, just one of these things. If you, well, not if you, when you get to nanny age, what would be your nanny nickname? I wouldn't have a clue. (laughs) Like, yeah, I wouldn't have a clue. I've got a moko. My moko is six years old and he is two months older than my six-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and when he was first born, so I'm kaitahu as well, and I thought, oh, I'll take on the tawa instead of nan. 
And then he just continued to call me Nan or um, Nanny, Nanny, you know, and it feels just, you just feel so wanted, Mm. you know, by your mokopuna. And it's a different, you know, there's unconditional love and this is a different, a whole new love. You know, Nanny love is just a whole new love they can get away with murder and they are still saints. You know, your kids... Your kids, you know, to a certain age and then it's these rules. But your mukopuna, you don't see any rules. That's just, they are, yeah, just a, it's just an amazing another level of love. How does that, that getting away with things as the mukopuna, how does that work with your six-year-old Pepe? Oh, I get that. I, she's quite sassy, my daughter, and she's like, <laughs> Why did you talk to Truth? So his name's Truth. Why did you talk to Truth nicely and you growled me? <laughs> you know, so um, I get pulled up on it often and I have to think, you know, how do I approach this because my daughter's watching. Mm. Yeah. As a mama, what's one of the greatest uh, lessons that you have learned over the years that you could share with those of us who ha- who are mama very sassy young women? Ah... That life, everybody has a little bit of mental health. Everybody has uh, challenges, troubles, uh, financial issues, um, but they're all at different levels. Mm. And that it's okay that you um, that you are challenged, um, but it's also okay to ask for help because I think with social media and life's perceptions that you you have to be something perfect. Um, but it's okay to have imperfections. Mm, mm. I like that. Looking at the mahi that you're doing, so we, we know that politics is, um, again, hopefully on the horizon, and we're at the 13th year mark for Iron Māori. What does the future hold for you? And... It could just be the near future. But, yeah. but what does the future hold for you? Uh, for Iron Māori, I'm succession planning because um, I think when we have Kopapa Māori, we get so driven and just doing the mahi that mm. we forget to succession plan. And um, I think the Māori Party may have, the previous Māori Party may have fallen into that category. And I'm sure they did have a plan, but whether it was implemented or not. So I'm succession planning. I'm looking at pulling back um, and growing the skill set of a few other Māori to take over Iron Māori for me because I um, have aspirations of going to Parliament, whether it's uh, the next time around or the time after I'm going to have three goes. And if I don't make it a third time, then it's time for somebody else to, mm. to step in. But that's kind of my drive is to uh, get to Parliament, although I'm, I'm dead set that Parliament isn't the destination. It's the beginning uh, for us to devolve government services back out. So the destination is that uh, we rule ourselves outside of government. So Parliament isn't my destination. It's the beginning, yeah. Mm like that. Well, Fana, you heard it. So you can only, people can only get into Parliament when you vote them into Parliament. And we still have a few more years for you to register to vote, which is important, particularly for our whānau Māori. 
Um, and then to choose who you want to represent you. And here is one kakas wahine in front of me at the moment who I think has such amazing aspirations for our whānau Māori um, and has a passion and a want to be in that space. I've come to our final partai, um, which is one that's can be intertwined with a little bit of advice and a little bit of hope, <laughs> a little bit of aspirational kōrero. Um, But what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? And when I speak about Indigenous, first and foremost here in Aotearoa, I talk about wahine Māori, but as we are also Indigenous to Te Moana Nui Akiwa, I also uh, ensure that we uh, encompass and incorporate our Pacifica sisters in there as well. What do you see as your hope for the future of Indigenous wahine? Um, that we stay tika and pono to who we are, wahine, Māori or, or um, Polynesian, but no matter how high you climb the ladder, you take people with you. Mm. You reach back and you pull people up that ladder with you because one day every single one of us will slide down that ladder and you'll need people to help you get off that ladder. Choice. Thank you so much for sharing with us. It's been great to learn a little bit more about who you are, the mahi that you have contributed to um, for our whānau and I'm really excited, actually, for for politics moving forward. Um, and having never met you before, to, to get just a slight insight into what you want to see for the future of Alfano is really exciting. So I wish you all the best in the next few years coming up. And um, thank you so much for being one of our nuku wahine. Tēnā koe. Kia ora. It's, it's a privilege. It's actually a privilege. Kia ora. Kia ora.